Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Anthony Alofsen. Anthony is an architect and architectural historian, an artist and art historian, a professor, and a writer. He has taught for numerous years at the University of Texas at Austin and is the author of many articles and publications, including The Times Literary Supplement, Burlington Magazine, and The New Criterion, as well as of more than a dozen books, many nonfiction books about architecture, and also a lyrical, fictive memoir called Half-Life. His most recent book has just been published by Yale University Press. It is Wright and New York, The Making of America's Architect. Judith Dupre, author of the best-selling book Skyscrapers, describes Wright and New York as a watershed investigation of Wright's life in the 1920s when he landed adrift in New York. The city proved antagonistic, irresistibly so, and transformed him. Alofsen's erudition, compelling prose, and first-rate detective work will alter how you perceive both Wright and Manhattan. Anthony, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jessica. I'd like to start somewhat counterintuitively with the epilogue um, in which you talk about how, as a young boy growing up in Tennessee, you encountered two of the key narrative threads in this book, and these being the influence and appeal of Frank Lloyd Wright and his architecture and his aesthetic, and the family of a man named William Norman Guthrie, who plays an important role in the story you tell here. Can you elaborate on these encounters? Well, the first encounter was formative in that the house that I grew up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, of all places, was inspired by Wright through the auspices of my parents, who in the 50s uh, and early 60s had been obviously studying Frank Lloyd Wright the way many um, people of their age had been through publications, shelter magazines like House Beautiful. And they subscribed to House Beautiful. And as a kid, I remember looking at these photographs, not really understanding what I saw, but I was looking at the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. And Memphis embedded itself, uh, and that house was very fundamental to my experience as, as a young person, at least up to my teenage years. And the irony of William Norman Guthrie is that uh, he had links to Tennessee also, even though he had uh, grown up in the, on the continent. Guthrie had gone to the University of the South at Sewanee, where he was ordained as an Episcopal, Episcopal minister. And what I discovered by a fluke, in effect, um, in the mid-'80s when I'd done my doctoral research, is that Guthrie was a wild man, number one, but he was also one of Frank Lloyd Wright's most important friends, uh, intimates, and, and patrons. And the story of Guthrie and Wright had really never been written before. So you have written about, written a lot about Frank Lloyd Wright over decades. You're one of the world's foremost Wright scholars. How was it that you came to realize that this particular junction of Frank Lloyd Wright and New York City um, needed further exploration? Well, in the sense that research 
can lead us to places that we don't anticipate, which is the fun of research in almost any field, whether it's the sciences or the humanities. I'd been um, working on several aspects of Wright's career and uh, his uh, his oeuvre, particularly his design processes, his connections to Europe. And I was always interested in Guthrie, but his archive had not been accessible. It had not been organized. It's at the Andover Newton Theological Library on the Harvard University campus. And finally, the Guthrie archive was put in order. And my colleague at Wesleyan, Joseph Seary, who's a brilliant Wright scholar, uh, noticed this and had written about Guthrie. So I thought, well, I'm going to find out more about Guthrie. So I went to the Guthrie archive and was just blown away by the material and by this personality that emerged. So just as I'd seen in my earliest work that there were these untold stories about Wright, there was an untold story about Wright and Guthrie. So this is a little tad long-winded, but it's a complex scenario how the book came about. So I thought, well, I'm going to explore Wright and Guthrie. And uh, I began to do this research um, on their relationship uh, in the 20s, and I started continuing to read Franklin Wright's correspondence. Of course, I was looking at Wright's work in the 20s and started putting something together and trying to figure out how to structure and formulate um, uh, something, a narrative that could take the shape of a book. So I was thinking it was Wright and Guthrie. I continued to do this research. And the more I read, the more I realized is that there was a third player in this picture, and that was New York City. And New York begins to emerge as, as the entity that brings Wright out of the pits of his life and career in the mid-1920s, uh, at the same time that Guthrie and Wright reconnect. So a story started to emerge that's about New York City and Frank Lloyd Wright, with Guthrie playing a role. So the emphasis began to shift in terms of what would be a book, and it became Wright and New York, which is ultimately what was published. So what is the the time frame um, that the book focuses on? What, what, what did Wright's life look like at the beginning of it? And Well, the, the book um, spans Wright's career uh, from – the turn of the, the century right up to the very end when he dies in 1959. But the main, main focus is the 20s and 30s. And as I try to explain to my dear readers that to really understand uh, this period, we need to go back and see who Wright was uh, in the early part of his career and his first contacts with New York. So we see this first visit in 1909 with his lover, Mama Borthwick Cheney and what New York was like. And Wright's contact with New York is sporadic and then intensifies in the mid-1920s when he basically bottoms out. His personal life is is just at nadir. His professional life is at an utter standstill. He's been arrested and thrown in jail in, in Minnesota for two days. It, things couldn't be worse. And he flees to New York. So this period from his, his flight to New York uh, with his lover, another lover, uh, is the period that gets the most intense concentration in the book and the part that's least known and most developed because this turns out to be the, the crucial turning point 
in his career. It's New York that begins to turn Frank Lloyd Wright around from the pits to the halcyon decades that follow uh, from the 30s onward. And how, how are some of the ways that that happens? Well, Guthrie re-enters the picture, and Guthrie commissions these two extraordinary projects. One is this visionary church, this universal church or modern cathedral, as uh, Wright called it. it. It's known as also as the Steel Cathedral, but that's inaccurate. It was mostly glass. Guthrie has this dream of what will be a church for all religions, which is part of his program to revolutionize the Episcopal liturgy and transform this crazy church called St. Mark's in the Bowery. Um, project number one. The, the second project is to do uh, an apartment building or a series of apartment buildings on land that the church owns to provide rental income for his various programs. So Guthrie commissions these projects that gets right into creative mode. The apartment building becomes a potential reality. This brings Wright to New York, and it starts to integrate him uh, into the cultural scene that's emerging in the late 20s. So there's this network that starts to build that Wright creates, uh, particularly with younger people on the sort of cutting edge of where modern architecture and modern art, modern design is going. They open their arms to the elder statesman. So this world starts to emerge that Wright cultivates and which in turn cultivates Wright. And these things are reciprocal. And as we move into the late 20s, even though these projects with Guthrie don't pan out, Wright becomes a known commodity. He becomes a professional writer. And this back and forth reestablishes his career along with exhibitions and lectures. And he's launched in the early 1930s when the Depression hits, while everybody else is out of work, Wright actually is starting to soar. It's an amazing uh, enigma and paradox. And from that point forward, Wright's career is on the ascent. And I'm pretty much convinced wouldn't have happened without New York. But there, it wasn't a relationship that was entirely free from antagonism. I mean, the sort of generally accepted understanding of Wright's relationship with cities is that he hated them, right? I mean, he was not a, a city guy. And not all of the players in New York were entirely receptive to him, right? Well, the, your point's well taken because while Wright is living in New York and staying there and benefiting from the acceptance, he's attacking the city. So there's this... The city itself becomes a kind of foil for this intellectual program, which starts being formulated in the mid-1920s to provide an alternative way to pursue his vision of a democratic American life, which is not going to happen in the city. It's going to happen in the country. So New York becomes this sort of whipping boy. While he reaps its benefits, ideologically, he continues to attack it, certainly in print. Enjoys it on one hand, criticizes it on the other. So he's uh, an ideologue, um, uh, not the first for sure. And he's also part of a long tradition of artists, creative people who come to New York, thrive there, and complain about it. So he's not unique in that regard. So he, he does indeed complain vociferously, but he's setting up a prop. He's setting up a prop, a foil to the vision that will become what's known as Broadacre City. So 
that is this tension that exists, which I think I tried to bring out in the book uh, and by looking at the essays that he wrote, started writing in the mid-20s in New York, that he refines and rethinks when he goes to the desert uh, in the late 20s, two years in a row, the desert being the antithesis of the city. So it work, starts working all these things out, these positions that are very intense. And there is resistance to him, of course, um, but not at all the kind of resistance that he pretends. Always, He always loved to claim he was you know, the prophet unheard in his own land. But there's a great deal of, of reception to write. And even among conservative architects, uh, they're more open to him than, than one would think. This is also the period of time when he really gets serious about his writing, right? And that his writing career actually takes off. What can you describe the relationship between the writing and New York and also how his architecture was being accepted too in relationship to the writing? Well, the, well, the Wright was a master at, at self-promotion uh, and at using any form of media at hand. And he followed very closely the critical response of his work. Earlier in the 20s and late teens, it's happening more in Europe than in the United States. And he has a controlling hand in how his work is presented. And of course, he's writing as well and contributing essays. Now, in the mid-20s, a fortuitous thing happens, and that is that Architectural Record, the leading professional journal of, of the period, commissions a series of essays by Wright, uh, which provide some income and start to exercise Wright's creative muscle. Now, he's been writing for a long time. Writing is a way for him to clarify and figure out his thoughts. You know, he didn't have a formal education. He didn't go to college, but he had a kind of gift uh, for the written word. And as for many people who love writing, it's the act of writing that helps you work through and clarify and define your thoughts, your ideas, and in some ways who you are. So write gets commissions for professional work. Um, he, through contacts in New York, like the New Yorker writer uh, Alec Wolcott, he has a literary agent named George Bai. Bai starts hooking him up with other uh, uh, publishers, magazines, and so forth, which ultimately leads to the most important publication, which is his own autobiography, published by a very venerable UK publisher with an, uh, a New York office, Longman Green. Which, based on the description in your book, um, sounds like a pretty wild text. How did you go about working with that in the context of this book? Well, the, there, there are a number of, there are three editions of Wright's uh, autobiography. And when I put all of this together, which took quite a while, all these pieces and parts, I realized that he'd started writing the autobiography, started drafting it exactly at this low point I mentioned earlier. So what the first first edition of the autobiography is, is as close to a record of these contemporary events in the late 20s as we could ever imagine, because it gives us his perspective before he later edits or alters things. So he um, 
starts putting this together, this complex publication. He describes it as a series of books, not chapters, and that's confusing to everyone, the publisher, his agent, and so forth. Um, but it's tremendously appealing because it's so straightforward. The candor is, is stunning, and the vulnerability that it expresses and this sort of poetic sentiment is very appealing. And it was particularly appealing to young people who, when the book came out in the early 30s and 32, read this. And there were people who said, I don't really know who I am, but I want to go study architecture with this man. And so the first group of people who were recruited to the Taliesin Fellowship were people who were like that, who were uh, admirers, and many of them had read the autobiography. It was a huge critical success. Uh, it was reviewed in major literary journals and magazines, newspapers, and so forth. That kind of vulnerability isn't something that he tended to express in how he presented himself in person or in his the correspondence that you cite in your book, which was much more confident, <laughs> self-aggrandizing sometimes. Did he sort of put all of that into his autobiography or...? I think the, autobi the autobiography was a moment of uh, honesty and, and directness that uh, wasn't consistent in the self-presentation that followed. And Wright had a chip on his shoulder uh, for a variety of reasons. And he came from a, a, his parents divorced, his father abandoned him. Uh, he was resentful his whole life. He didn't have the opportunities that others had. Uh, and uh, he felt neglected when he wasn't neglected. Uh, life isn't so easy. So he, he took umbrage. But he was a very complex figure, and I think the complexity of his personality is, in, is neglected in most of the biographies that we have on Wright, uh, where the large personality, it's so big, it's easy to sensationalize. And books continue to be written that sensationalize his, his life without picking up the nuance of, of the fact of his vulnerability, of his generosity, of his kindness, of his humor. Uh, uh, and as I did my own research and I perceived this, through, particularly through the letters that he wrote and the interaction that he had with hundreds of people, this complexity emerged. Um, there was one great, a great dimension of that was clear in the letters between Wright and his mother. And a lot of those, uh, I'm sad to say, didn't get into the book as, as, a, uh, as it was written because you can't put everything in. <laughs> but I did read all of these letters, and it gave me a tremendous uh, sense of, of this human being and this father, this mother-son relationship, which is always a very powerful one, and how particularly powerful it was uh, for Wright, uh, right up to the moment that his mother died. Uh, she was very involved with the woman who became his second wife. Um, Wright had an honesty with his mother that was really extraordinary. Uh, he was an adulterer. Uh, she knew all about it. Uh, she never hesitated for one moment to constantly remind him that he had this great manifest destiny to be a tremendously great artist in the, in the history of art, that sort of thing huge aggrandizement of his ego. And these things all knit together to, to form, to help, well, to 
shape the complexity of, of this personality. But for every instance of his uh, um, overweening ego, there are counter moments of, of vulnerability or, or kindness or sensitivity or um, balancing factors. One of the other ways that Wright seemed to have a, a chip on his shoulder, as you said earlier, had to do with this particular moment in the history of modern art and architecture. You mentioned a publication earlier, House Beautiful, that wound up being very aligned with Wright in an assessment of um, where architecture in America was heading. You know, the they came out strongly against the international style, which had a large number of proponents in New York especially. Can you talk a little bit about how that played out? Yes. Well, this, this touches on one of the, the important themes of the book that emerges uh, in the 20s that uh, we haven't been too aware of. Um, the 1920s, the jazz age, the, the pinnacle of Art Deco, where New York is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. And Art Deco architecture, which is often been dismissed in the past as decorative and superficial, was, uh, to my point of view, one of the first great expressions of a real American architecture that was freed from European imitation and from the Greco-Roman traditions. We love Art Deco architecture to this very day. This was the effort of artists and craftspeople and practitioners to create a distinctly American idiom, and they were tremendously successful at doing it. So we have, on the one hand, Art Deco emerging with this stylistic uh, efflorescence, this vitality and richness, and at the same time, the beginnings of the international style with its roots in Europe. This all starts to converge in the late 1920s with Wright um, watching and monitoring and positioning himself as the third way. So we have Art Deco, we have the international style, and Wright proposing his organic architecture as the real expression of an American democratic architecture. So these forces are contending, and they're all knit together uh, from the late 1920s into the early 1930s, uh, with Wright playing a pivotal role. And Wright's experiences in New York in some ways culminate with um, the design and construction of the Guggenheim Museum, um, which is a pretty spectacular example of his organic architecture right in the middle of Manhattan. Um, I would love to hear you talk about the reception at the time, which was not strongly in favor of the building, and how that has shifted over the years since then. The Guggenheim, which had its roots in 1943, was a long-term commission. And it's interesting to think about what Wright began to think about when this commission came up. The initial form was the in many ways, the opposite of what we look at today, that drum that spirals upward, upwards, was actually inverted in the form of a ziggurat. And for Wright, this shape itself, this spiral shape of the ziggurat, is a kind of primal form, a kind of archetypal form. So at the outset, we have to say that the Guggenheim is, on the one hand, classic modernist abstraction, and on the other hand, 
its primal architecture that is rootless and timeless. And Wright believed in archetypes. So we start with this archetypal object gets turned on its head and slowly developed over time. It takes so long. By the early 1950s, people are getting nervous. There are big protests. Artists are saying, publishing letters saying, this isn't a place for art. Uh, there's a change of directors. Uh, James Johnson Sweeney is very nervous with Wright. He's come from the enemy camp, the Museum of Modern Art. Wright's very leery. Their relationship is very tense. Hilary Bay, who originally commissioned, has been bounced out. So there's a lot of tension uh, around the conclusion or the, or the concluding years of the construction. Of course, Wright dies just shy of 92, six months or so before the building is completed. Now, like Iampe's Louvre uh, pyramid, when it opened, there were people just howling in, in outrage. And of course, everyone loves it now. But the Guggenheim had the curious history of having uh, a series of directors over maybe 30 years who constantly complained that it didn't work for their vision of what a modern museum of art should be. Now, the project was a commission for a fixed collection of art. It wasn't intended for lots of shows. It wasn't intended to be a kind of Kunsthalle. It was for Solomon Guggenheim's fixed collection. That was that, a house museum, so to speak. So those complaints weren't exactly valid. But in the late 1980s, uh, there's a kind of shift at the, at the Guggenheim with, under new auspices where the director realizes that the building itself is a kind of gold mine, and it becomes rebranded with a positive identification. This also happens to coincide with the reemergence of an interest in Frank Lloyd Wright that had lapsed from the time of his death for 20 years or more uh, until the mid-1980s. So we have this reinterest in Wright, this fresh way of looking at the Guggenheim itself as a wonderful object for branding, which is what it became, uh, and the legacy that now is sort of cemented in place. Do you think that as a building it'll remain relevant? Well, I think it. I think it's timeless. I think it's the the classic. I think it has a, a, a fundamental cultural role in in the history of art, and will continue to have that. Um, let's loop back quickly to William Norman Guthrie again, since he really, you know, he was there at the beginning of the idea of the book, and he plays such a, a large role in the narrative itself. Um, and talk about this idea that, as you mentioned, didn't come to pass of a Frank Lloyd Wright skyscraper in Manhattan. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the building itself that he designed? This skyscraper for St. Mark's and the Bower, a version of it was ultimately built in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Wright recycled the design. He believed in it so much that 20-something years later, he still wants to build it. And in fact, it's built. It's built to this day. You can actually visit a version of what would have gone up uh, in between East 10th and East 11th Street. Now, people say, oh, thank God it didn't, you know, these tall buildings and so forth. Um, I think that's a little bit beside the point. But what was exciting about this was not only was this a way to resurrect and provide income for the church, but Wright believed absolutely that this tower 
which was built, had a central core out of concrete with floors cantilevered off of it like branches from a tree trunk, that this way of building a skyscraper was revolutionary and should be the new model of all skyscrapers. So it's a response to the International Styles version of what will be the tall building, which is more like a box. So Wright sees in the St. Mark's in the Bowery project a new model for the American skyscraper. And even in the 20s, architectural critics are saying the future of modern architecture is embedded in one building type, the skyscraper. So this is a building that's going to revolutionize all of architecture, and so the damn thing's got to be built. He lost control a little bit of the descriptions of it as, you know, the plans for a while were still moving forward to build it, and Guthrie just had to convince funders and whatnot. You know, that went on for a while. Um, Wright's design was slightly wider at the top than at the bottom, but somehow this got turned into, oh, it was going to be this upside-down pine tree or some craziness and cast shadows over city blocks and whatnot. Um, How did that happen? Well, Wright was promoting this building and getting it published before the clients had even approved it. So it did get a little out of control because Wright was followed by all the wire services uh, from from the mid-20s on, for first for his scandalous behavior, and then they just had a habit of doing this. So he was able to distribute ideas, and uh, this was an uh, unusual building, and the images of it were copied, and there was this criticism where it looks taller at the top and then the bottom. Uh, Wright would respond, sort of deflect the criticism, and then in the final analysis, when the final drawings were done, that clearly was modified somewhat, and you couldn't even tell that this upside-down pyramid uh, uh, possibility was was even remotely there. I mean, these days, the idea of architects as household names is pretty standard, but Frank Lloyd Wright was really one of the very first. I mean, he, he was known all over the world, and one of the things that your book really brings to light in a lovely way is... Uh, the difficulty of understanding his life before that happened. I mean, uh, a lot of the high points of his career were in the second half of his life. And so there were a lot of years when, you know, he was dogged by personal scandal and his buildings weren't being built and he felt underappreciated in his home country. And um, I think that the lovely contribution this book makes is the role that New York City played in that shift from Frank Lloyd Wright as this frustrated first half of his career, things were not going the way he wanted them to, to the Frank Lloyd Wright, who is the continues to be the global superstar architect name um, today. He certainly had his ups and downs. And I think one of the frustrations that, that he experienced was this first golden age of his work from 1900 to 1909 was a time of uh, great success where he was clearly uh, revolutionizing domestic architecture. But it was also happening at a regional scale. He was not a nationally known architect. He was starting, but he, he didn't, have that, uh, didn't have that reputation, regardless of what 
he said afterwards or what anyone would say. It, it just wasn't there. He was an upcoming star. And then his career really starts slipping. Uh, there's personal there's personal scandal when he runs off to Europe in 1909, comes back in 1910. The Imperial Hotel Project the teens is very problematic. His personal life is still very troublesome. Um, he's in Japan for uh, 32 months, a very long period during the teens, out of commission uh, in the States. So we have an artist who's experienced rising success and then a long period, not of latency, it's tremendously creative, but of lack of the kind of recognition that one would expect. In other words, the ascent is not a straight line. There's a big dip. Now, the traditional histories would say Bright did nothing from 1910 to 1936 when Falling Water appeared. And my whole uh, profession, professional career as an art historian has been to actually turn that on its head and to show that from 1910 to 1936, there was a lot going on. It was very exciting and very creative. So the, the fruits of Bright's labor, this success that he wanted and that he was primed to have with someone like his mother behind him, nudging him on, uh, was delayed and frustrated, tremendously frustrated. And if you are a creative person, whether you're an architect or an artist, and you can't do your work or your work is thwarted or blocked, the frustration goes deep. It goes deep into your soul. And it, 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 it's like a kind of irritant or, or even like a poison. And Wright suffered this way, so he was always anxious. And then we start to see, though he's creatively working in the 20s, can't get anything built, but finally things start picking up speed, and the recognition that he so wanted uh, starts to appear, and it coincides with this refuge he finds in New York. And the actual city of New York also as a character in the book is really wonderful. I mean, the descriptions of the other people that he comes into contact with are lots that we haven't mentioned here and the, the what the streets looked like and the idea of Frank Lloyd Wright strolling along these streets with one lover or another, his sister who lived there, um, are really wonderful. It just is very vibrant in terms of a description of the of that place at that time. Well, the cultural life of New York in, in the 20s and 30s um, is so rich. We, we, it continues to reveal itself. And uh, I recently read a, a marvelous um, biography of Willem de Kooning by Mark Stevens. It was actually written a while ago. And that deepened my own understanding, even after, I, even after I'd written this book, of how distant the reception of modernism and modern art was in New York in the 20s and 30s. So this small circle of avant-garde people that Wright fell into, young people who accepted him and promoted him, uh, were, were people who really were on the edge uh, of, of, of these developments because there's a great deal of resistance to things that are modern, not just in architecture, but in modern art itself. So there's, it's a pioneering moment. That's it, very exciting. And in that sense, I hope that the book um, P 
peels back some of these dimensions of cultural life in New York in this uh, vibrant time. It absolutely does. It's a very exciting read. I think it's going to be important for people who have a deep understanding and interest already in Frank Lloyd Wright to read. It's also terrific for the for the non-specialist. And uh, thank you for talking about it with me today. Well, thank you for having me. The book we've discussed is titled Wright in New York, The Making of America's Architect. It is available now in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.